everyone. This is Robin Sills. Welcome to Medically Speaking from St. Mary's Hospital. I, I feel like I'm a little bit off my game and I apologize for that. I had a little bit of a crazy 24 hours. So my uh, daughter had her third baby uh, last night, which I'm very excited about. She has two little boys and her and her husband, Nick, just had their first baby girl. We're very excited. But it ended up being an emergency C-section. So um, all hands on deck when someone goes into labor and you are and not in the city and your daughter needs you right away. I came flying back in from Hartford and um, I've had her uh, four-year-old and two-year-old for the last 25 hours, but who's counting? <laughs> and then I'm going to have them until Friday, but that's it's okay. But I'm a little off my game, so I apologize if I, I don't sound fully like myself. But I was excited to come and do this program because we really have a great um, physician from our Springfield market who's going to be joining us. And he actually got stuck in traffic, but he's calling in and should be calling in probably within the next five minutes. So I'm going to take the opportunity, um, number one, to uh, tell you about tonight's topic to make sure that I pique your interest. So we are sticking with the theme of um, staying fit and getting fit and use it or lose it, which has been the topic that we've had all month. And in the beginning of the month, um, we heard from a uh, physical therapist, um, sports medicine trainer that's at our Mount Sinai um, facility, um, Mr. Guvea. I want to make sure Bud Guvea. I want to make sure I had to think of the winery, which is really sad to remember his name. Bud Guvea, and he gave us some great information about our Mount Sinai Rehab Hospital and talked a lot about exercise and how they have uh, post therapy, post uh, programs, and these post treatment programs are for people that have had some type of disease process and such as a stroke. They finish the traditional therapy, but then they have a post therapy program that they make available with. Their swimming program and their exercise class at Mount Sinai. So I found that incredibly interesting and, and you, really you know a good what? piece. You know what? That's yes, good, Johnny. They tell you to. That's how you remember people's names. You associate I did. them with something. That was so what that happened, was, Johnny Gouveia. I had to remember, <laughs> and so then I remembered Bud Gouveia, and that's really it's like bad. You go into a room, they tell you. Yeah, associate but, with but I'm going to ask for indulgence tonight <laughs> a little bit. I'm going to ask for some indulgence tonight, and then um, we followed that up with our Friday morning program which we had a couple of weeks ago and we brought in the team from our wound center, Lisa and Scott, and they talked about, we wanted to focus on diabetic foot care and how important it is to make sure that our diabetic patients are active. Um, and if they're not active and they're not taking care of their diabetes, they develop foot ulcers, whereas the wound center steps in. But the wound center is very instrumental in getting these people back on their feet, which is why we felt it was a great fit. So tonight... We are actually going to have a speaker from um, Mercy, as I said earlier, from our sister hospital up in Springfield. He is a sports exercise um, medicine physician. His name is Dr. Zachary Shepard, and he's incredible speaker and I think he's going to give us another take on number one what sports medicine is but also how we can use sports medicine to help us use it or lose it to help us stay fit so while we're waiting for Zach to call I want to take the opportunity to you a little bit about the Sparkle event and we're really excited Um, Sparkle is going to be this is our fifth 
Sparkle event. We're calling it uh, Five and Fabulous. We're very excited to have our fifth event here in Waterbury. So it's going to be May 8th. And you know how to throw a party. We do know how to throw a party. We do, Johnny. We know how to throw a party. So it's going to be May 8th at the Aquaturf in Southington. We are going to have, as we always do, a bevy of speakers. We're going to have a ton of physicians there. And I should really say speakers because what we really do is we have physicians there engaging directly with the patients. It's more intimate. It's more an intimate, well, you, if you can call 900 women in a room intimate, <laughs> well, with then the I'll go with that. Right. I'll go with but, that. I mean, you could talk directly, which you, right. how often do you get to do outside you of the office? And so, you know, I always I mean, find it interesting because the women love going around to all the vendor tables and what we are including this year, which we have been doing is we're going to be including all the physicians at the vendor tables from not only our uh, Trinity Health of New England Medical Group physicians, but also community partners that we have, such as our ENT doctors, our orthopedic doctors, our urology group. They've all agreed to participate again. And the physicians will be at the tables. But additionally, we're doing something a little different. We, we like to keep it fresh. We like to continuously change it up. So we do something that's called, in the past, it was called dessert with the docs. And I think I've talked about this before, where we have it in the classroom, if you're familiar with the AquaTurf. There's a room there. It's called the glass room. And we have all the doctors in that glass room kind of set, you know, kind of separated from the main area. And women come in, have piece of dessert with the physician or take a piece of dessert and we like them to engage with the physicians. That doesn't always happen. What tends to happen is the women go crazy in there, grabbing the cupcakes, grabbing the cookies, and sometimes they're a little shy about talking to the docs. So last year we brought them all out to the main room. Based on the surveys, women were like, I miss that room with the doctors. I said, okay. So we're going to try to keep everybody happy. So we are going to do something called deserted with the docs. And what we're going to have is a Hawaiian theme. Um, we have palm trees. We have flamingos. It's going to be in the main room, but a little bit separated. And all the doctors are going to be rotating in that room. So at one point, you may have orthopedic doctors in there. You may have pain medicine. You may have primary care. You may have OBGYNs. They're going to rotate in that room. Women are going to be able to go into that room um, and have a schedule in front of them and know who's going to be in there when. And for every physician you talk to, you get a Hawaiian lei. So women will be collecting the Hawaiian leis throughout the night. And there will be one specialty dessert in there. So we wanted to change it up and make it fun, but the docs want a little of both. Yeah, so we're going to be, good. yeah, it but should be a lot of fun. The question is, there's still room. Can oh my gosh. There is still room. There is right. still room so because we just made it live. Look at you, Johnny, throwing the teasers out <laughs> to keep me in line. So for sure. So women can go on to St. Mary's website, ST mh.org um, up at the top it's called women have spirit we also have and you click right on there and if you're not already registered as a spirit of women member we ask you to do so because then you'll get updates from us on all our programs and then we definitely have oh our doc is on the line and then we definitely have the ability for you to not only register for the event but also register for future events and because our physician has joined us I want to take the opportunity to bring him on the phone with us and then we will go back Back to Sparkle at 
the end. So I want to welcome Dr. Zachary Shepard. Hi, Doc. Hey, how's it going? Good. How you doing? Uh, not too bad other than traffic, but can't complain yeah. otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And, you of know, um, prior to you coming on, I kind of teased the audience a little bit as to the direction we were going to take a little bit tonight with your specialty. So as I said to you earlier, I have your brochure in front of me, and I love the little piece that it talks about with sports medicine and it says sports medicine is also known as sports and exercise medicine which is a branch of medicine that deals with physical fitness and the treatment and prevention of injuries related to sports and exercise through non-surgical care and this is your specialty absolutely and i think it's one of those specialties that individuals have a lot of questions on so i just i definitely want to explore a little bit what sports medicine is with you now you're board certified in pediatrics and internal medicine correct correct and then you completed from my information you completed a fellowship in primary care sports medicine at Rutgers, very impressive in in new jersey and combined a residency in internal medicine and pediatrics at bay state and what i love about that is it takes such a broad picture and then bring sports medicine into it because you can really treat with your sports medicine practice all generations absolutely yeah and and what i like like we had been uh, discussing before uh, a common misnomer for sports medicine is is thinking that it's just related to team athletes so team sport athletes like baseball basketball etc but a huge emphasis really on that active individual who exercises or wants to be active um, or is intermittently active, where that's actually the majority of what I end up seeing is whether it's an acute or an overuse injury in that individual who happened to have time on Saturday when their kids were over to friend's house to go for that run and they twisted an ankle or they injured their hamstring. Um, but that's that's uh, one of the uh, more common things that I end up seeing is somebody who finally had that chance to be active and then they either pushed it too hard or, or kind of had something happen. Um, but that's a, that's a really great patient for me to see. And it's so, you know, so I, I loved when you had said that to me earlier. And then I, you know, I read a little bit more about information that we have out you out on you and sports medicine in the Springfield area. I think definitely it's one of those branches of medicine that is a bit misunderstood. And so making it more prevalent and making people more aware of it, I think is so important, which is why I think you were such a good fit for this topic and for this program you know tonight was to let's explore sports medicine and is it a growing field um as far as i can tell yes um, yeah. uh, the, the push is always to be more active and to, to participate in more things um and we absolutely see it in the pediatric um the pediatric field right there where kids are getting involved with more and more and more activities whether it's team sports or whether it's individualized activities and then there's always that push for adults, whether they're in their 20s and 30s, whether they're aging and they're just trying to be able to do their typical day-to-day stuff more easily and more more appropriately. Exercise uh, to their appropriate capacity is, is a vital aspect of continuing to participate with what they want to do. So because you've um, also done, certif- you're certified in pediatrics, your fellow colleagues that are pediatricians, so we'll stay with that a little bit with the pediatric world. So your fellow <laughs> colleagues are who are pediatricians, do you find them sending you their, their patients? instead of going directly to an orthopedic physician, say. Yeah, and, and once again, it's going to depend on what that issue is. Right. But for the most part, uh, kids that I end up seeing are usually kind of mid to late grade school up through 
uh, their adolescence into their early 20s. Um, and, and this is actually similar where it's whether it's a, an acute injury or a chronic ongoing type of an issue due to ongoing activities, uh, it's a great type of patient for me to see once again. I mean, I know we had started a reference last time we had talked kind of the different kinds of injuries. And yes. it's, it's very different when it comes to kids compared to when it comes to adults. And that's kind of referencing how they grow and the fact that they have open growth plates in other locations that are more apt to get injured compared to myself. I don't have open growth plates. I can't right. injure those right there. Right. Uh, but it certainly presents a very different etiology of what you're looking at depending on the age and where they are also within their growth pattern. What are some of the more common injuries that you see with the youth? Uh, it's going to depend on what that activity is. Mm-hmm. Being up north, depending on what time of year it is, right. I tend to see a lot of knee and shoulder injuries. Mm-hmm. Certainly you'll get the smattering of ankles and hips wrists, elbows, but with what people tend to do a lot of, which most sports are going to involve quite a bit of running and quite a bit of repetition that involves that running, uh, we tend to see a lot of overuse injuries when it comes to the knees, like I was referencing right there. Right. Things that you will see remnants of in an adult, but typically not an issue any longer. Things like osgood Schlatter disease, where they have an irritation of their tibial tuberosity, a little bumpy thing that's underneath their kneecap. Yeah. And that's typically from that repetitive running or jumping activity where their uh, patellar tendon is going to be pulling repetitively on that, causing a little bit more bone growth and a little bit more prominence when you press down. Um, you can have other things... Uh, like sending larson johansson syndrome, which is just uh, the proximal portion or the upper portion where that patellar tendon attaches to the kneecap, a similar underlying problem right there, uh, which these over time do get better, typically for the most part on their own, as long as they're not further aggravated. Right. But there are ways that I like to teach uh, patients and their parents how to work on getting them better soon to allow them to appropriately participate in their sport, depending on what they're doing. So, so what are your first steps when someone comes in with an injury such as that? What are some of the first things that you do? when you diagnose it? Yeah, so the the bread and butter is their, their history to start off with right there. It's really important that you have an idea of who are they, what do they do from an activity standpoint, um, and especially is this more of a chronic issue or did this just happen where they were running, they stepped in a divot and they twisted? That's a very different consideration than them saying it's just been kind of nagging for quite a while right now. Um, so that's where I can at least narrow down in my mind what I think might be going on. But that's where I also try to try to pin it down a little bit better when it comes to my physical exam. I have a pretty specific way that I like to go through, if we're talking about knees, specifically uh, knee exams, to better understand what part of the knee should I be concerned about. How do I correlate what happened with their history and their either activities or their most recent injury to try to once again narrow down from a, a physical exam and functional standpoint what my concern would be to, for example, get imaging studies like x-rays or what I should be doing for teaching them home exercises, uh, looking at their gait when they walk through the office, sending them to physical therapy, um, determining what we need to do uh, in terms of uh, uh, getting them back appropriately to their sport. But the vast majority of what I do from a diagnostic standpoint is going to be history and physical. The x-rays, or if I get more advanced imaging like an MRI, that's more so to confirm what I'm concerned about right there. Right. Uh, or to rule out some of the more serious things. But that history and physical is vitally important, just like every doc's going to say from, uh, from right. any specialty right there. And, you know, it's funny, but you're, you're right. One of the things you look for, especially when you, when you do advanced imaging, so if you're doing those MRIs, you at that point, you make that determination if you need to go to the next step and that someone may need surgery or something different other than the rehab issue. Yeah, and I, and I, I lay it out pretty... Um, 
pretty bluntly when they're there. I say, hey, if, if I thought, if, if I'm not getting imaging right away, I'll say, hey, if I thought you needed surgery today, by all means, the first thing that I would be discussing right, right now is imaging. Right. Um, but the other thing to think about is, even if I think I know what's going on, I can't see inside mm-hmm. that knee, I can't see inside their shoulder. Um, if they don't respond to their rehabilitation like I would expect them to, then that's a concern to say, well, maybe I did miss something initially. Let's certainly reevaluate it. Right. Let's make sure we, we better understand, do we need to get more advanced imaging or at least imaging to begin with uh, to better determine to make sure that we're going down the right route already. And rehab is a really interesting field in and of itself because I think a lot of us look at physical therapy and we're like, yeah, they, yeah, you do it and you do what you need to do when you go there, but you don't do what you should do when you go home. So you don't have that you don't have that level of continuity. Physical therapy and, and otherwise rehab is a gigantic portion of what I try to preach and try to teach. In terms of uh, when we talk about that, like I mentioned with the Osgood slaughter, eventually that pain right. should get better. It may take a year and a half to two years if you're really not doing anything to get it better and you're continuing your activity, but it eventually should get better. But what I try to do is is kind of kind of walk people through the underlying pathophysiology, the reason uh, why they have their issue. And then how we go about correcting that to not just get them better, to also prevent it in the future. And that's where rehab really comes in. If it's not that patient where I think they tore their ACL and they need that MRI to get them to to orthopedic surgery, then we are trying to rehab that area by strengthening and or stretching and or working on balance for all the structures around it to go forward. As far as a rehab standpoint, what I always try to do is if I think rehab is the right next step, which a lot of the time it really is, um, I try to give them a good understanding of some basic exercises I would recommend right off the bat. So I usually use a good five, six, seven minutes at the end of the visit to try to teach those rehab exercises. So whether they're going to actually go to physical therapy or not, which is is tough when it comes to certain patient schedules, um, I like to give them that foundation that even if it's going to take a week to get in, they've got a week head start on some basic physical therapy to strengthen those surrounding structures. Um, I have similar conversations when it comes to adults, whether it's arthritis or other issues that are appropriate for steroid injections. I, I let them know right off the bat, hey, the steroid injection certainly may feel better with this, but this isn't the be-all to end-all. We need to correct the underlying problem, which is contributing to your underlying arthritis or your underlying uh, bursitis. So yeah, physical therapy is a gigantic portion about what uh, of what I end, uh, end up doing with patients. Because, you know, you're so right because we're all, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I'm sitting here because I hurt my knee like I can't count how long ago it is and it keeps getting better and I'm like yeah it's better it's better and then I'll do something it'll happen again and so I'm like yeah I need to push the button I need to push the button yeah and and what I actually say is is I describe it this is homework for your knee yeah this is five to ten minutes a day if you can do it as consistently as possible we're we're looking for um, Mm -hmm. ongoing improvements but I also give them some expectations too Um, If we're starting physical therapy for a chronic knee issue, it's not going to get better in a week or it's not going to feel like it used to in a week. I usually let them know it's going to take four to six weeks to really notice some difference, and that may only be 10 or 20% because that's how long it takes to truly build some new muscle fibers to at least get the foundation of of rehab right there. And then you should see quite a bit of improvement there on out. But I really emphasize this is homework. You need to treat this like something you need to do or it's going to be a lot more difficult to get you feeling better. And, you know, that conditioning that you do with the, a younger athlete, that's going to last them a lifetime if it's done as right. As long as they can keep it up, yeah. Right? And that's really important. And if it's really an underlying problem when it comes to what they're doing that's causing this, it can be really helpful to better assess, like I mentioned, uh, their gait in terms of how they walk around. Um, if they're willing to go to physical therapy, having a physio- physiotherapist look at what they do 
because that might really, really help to prevent it in the future. I always think about the idea of uh, baseball mechanics. Um, you'll see those pitchers who just throw so much more with their shoulder and their elbow than they really should because a lot of what you should be doing for generation of power is um, hips and thighs and core and low back. Um, that it shouldn't be just kind of transitioning through the shoulder where you are adding some more, um, but the majority of it should be coming from other bigger muscle groups. Right. So really looking at that underlying problem as to why it may have happened can hopefully prevent it or at least minimize the chances of it happening again in the future. You know, it's amazing because my, I, I can remember, and this goes back a bit because my son now is 34, but when he was younger, he played a ton of baseball in Little League and Prospect. And there were a couple young kids that were pitchers, and they had these kids pitching day after day after day, like nine, ten years old. And, you know, for a while, my husband said, we got to put these kids on a pitch count. We're going to blow out their arms. And sure enough, these kids that wanted to make it ended up not being able to go as far as they wanted to go because they had just been so overworked as kids. And I don't think, and I think they were hurting at times, but they we we didn't employ the the medicine, the sports medicine piece back then to really work with these kids and do the right thing by them. Yeah, and actually on a, on a state-by-state basis, you're going to have uh, varying levels of pitch counts hmm. um, that we try to keep kids um, to, just just like you said right there. Um, certainly mechanics can play a big role, but just sheer repetition. Oh, yeah. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're a pitcher who's going to pitch 8 to 10 months out of the year, you're going to pitch every game for your team, you're certainly at much higher risk for injuries. And um, I, I'd actually read... Um, um, some studies, this was a number of months ago, a huge proportion of the Tommy John surgeries that we end up doing, um, or not me, but surgeons end up doing um, in athletes. This is the, the ligaments along the middle portion of your elbow. It's really, really important from a valgus stress standpoint um, for throwing, for speed, and for accuracy. Um, a decent enough portion comes in kids that are under 18. Wow. So um, wow. it's just kind of a, a testament just to the fact that we, we throw a lot when it comes to these kids. Um, there's really uh, an emphasis on that right there, and we just need to be careful. Um, you need to make sure we're, we're keeping an eye on their pitch counts. We need to make sure we're keeping an eye on their uh, on their mechanics, that we're doing this safely. And there's uh, actually a pretty significant increase risk in kids who not just pitch but also catch. If you're a pitcher and a catcher, you're throwing every single pitch. Wow. Um, compared to those kids who pitch and play other positions. And, and, so just something that's really important to pay attention to. And kneeling, too, and, and squatting, rather. You're squatting, too. The catchers are squatting, so their knees get blown out. They're up and down and up and down. Uh, yeah, yeah. They, they do have some nice things like knee savers, some pads that yep. help protect the, the extent of knee flexion at this point. But, yeah, it, it certainly puts a toll on your body. Yeah, I just remember watching these kids, and I'm like, I would look at my husband, I'm like, I can't believe we're pitching him again. But, you know... It's just the way it was back then. You know, times have definitely changed. And like you said, I think it's changed quite a bit, which is really good because it's so important for our kids to keep them healthy. Because most of these kids are probably not going to do this professionally. But the ones that are good, you want to make sure you give them that opportunity. Yeah, and, and the, the other tough thing is when kids play multiple leagues, how yeah. do you keep track of their pitch count from one yeah. league to another? How do you keep track of their warm-up pitches? Mm. Um, there was a study that just came out that I was listening on the radio, actually. They were talking about um, monitoring. I can't remember what level it was at. If it was, I think it was high school in a certain town. Um, uh, I think it was an orthopedic group had gone to each of the high school games and determined how many pitches did they throw for the game and then what percent of these pitches had been thrown for warm-ups. Wow. And I think it was up to 40% of the pitches that they actually threw was warm-ups. Wow. So whether it was before the game or for each inning, those all count towards kind of the number of throws. It counts towards the You may the not be throwing the same velocity, right. but, um, but that's still more wear and tear in the arm. And it's fun. There used to be an announcer 
I am a Yankee fan. I, I'm sorry. I know you're in Springfield. <laughs> no, I, I grew up a Yankee fan, actually. You did. Good boy. <laughs> but sorry to my Red Sox fans. My dad was a diehard Red Sox fan, so I wear both hats sometimes. But um, I, there was a, a broadcaster, um, Ed Cott, and he was a pitcher. And mm-hmm. we were. he used to broadcast on the Yankees, and I would laugh, but he's, I, he said things that made so much sense to me, and I'll never forget the lesson that he said. He said, we have so many pitchers that are blo- that are getting hurt, that are getting Tommy Johnson, they're blowing their arms out. He said, when I was a kid and I was a pitcher, he said, you had to throw every day. And I don't mean pitch. I just mean throw, exercise your arm, use that motion. He said, but we tend to rest them and not do that. So sometimes it's more exercise, the repetitive motion, but not so much overthrowing it. Well, there's also increased risk when, when uh, people are throwing over 85 to 90, yeah. 90 miles an hour. That's a uh, force on that uh, ligament on the inside of the elbow, the UCL, right. uh, to potentially tip or rupture it. Right. Um, so that's what we also see now. Middle relievers in the in, in the major leagues are no longer those guys that throw 85, 88 miles an hour. Right. Um, some of these guys are flamethrowers. They're throwing 98, 102. Yeah. Um, so certainly, yeah, certainly that's the emphasis in the, in the in the majors at this point. There's there's definitely a risk. See, Doc, I told you we'd end up going down other roads, but it is baseball season. <laughs> it is spring, and I just it got is, on that topic, it and it was good. Um, before we get on to, I'm going to take a break in just a minute, but before we get on to um, looking at a little bit more of the adult medicine. With sports medicine do you have something in your brochure here we didn't touch on but i want to throw it out there do you do you see patients with concussions especially kids yes i see patients with um sports uh, related concussions yes and and what's the evaluation with the kids and what do you you know what's the line of treatment because i think that's really an interesting thing especially now there's a lot going on with concussions and 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 the precaution for these kids with concussions and what you know so what do you do with that yeah, so so part of my workup is going to depend on what was done beforehand. Did this mm-hmm. child go to the ER beforehand? Did they have anything like a CAT scan of the brain? Um, have they seen another provider? How far out from the injury are we, and where are we from a symptom standpoint? Mm-hmm. Um, so my first step, I had said it before in terms of um, any other injury, I'm getting that history right there um, to determine what level of concern I should have based on the injury. Mm-hmm. Um, because my exam and my other testing right there, I want to rule out a more serious injury right off the bat. Um, I've done uh, a bunch of uh, sports coverage on the sideline. Your your evaluation right there is very specific to say, I want to make sure I know what's going on. I want to rule out a more serious injury that means they need to go to the ER right now. And I want to determine, can they go back to the sport or not? I mean, if I'm seeing them days, days later, it's not a question. They've already um, had some kind of symptoms that was concerning enough. They're coming to see me. So it's less likely I need to diagnose the concussion, but I'm going through my history to make sure if they didn't get neuroimaging to begin with, do I need to get it now to rule out a skull fracture or um, um, any kind of an intracranial in the brain injury, like a contusion or a bleed? Right. Um, so I go through a, a pretty specific and rigorous um, neurologic and musculoskeletal exam to make sure that everything is equal both sides. So from a strength standpoint, from a sensory standpoint, um, I'm checking their pupils, I'm checking out their balance. I do some more specific concussion testing to get an understanding because you can have a number of organ systems that are involved. Some of the more specific ones that I'll do are their vestibular balance system. I do a uh, a testing protocol called the modified best testing. Um, and this is looking at their balance with their eyes closed and their hands on their hips and their feet in different positions. So feet next to each other, 
feet in tandem gait, so that's heel to toe, mm-hmm. and then one foot testing to get an idea of how many errors do they have with that balance to determine how much more concern should I need with their balance. And I also do another specific screen called the vestibulo screen. This is looking at vision to get an idea of, based on a number of different um, movements that they have them follow uh, with their fingers or my fingers, um, what kind of reproduction or worsening of symptoms do they get, such as headache, dizziness, nausea, or fogginess, to give me an idea of how involved are their organ systems. Um, and I have a pretty, uh, a pretty elaborate conversation with them and within the pediatric population with their parents to give them an idea of what is my diagnosis. If it's a concussion, I explain. A concussion is a mild traumatic brain injury that by, net, by definition would not have any findings that are new on a uh, CAT scan or an MRI of the brain. Right. And I try to explain to them um, in terms of you're having symptoms because of, and I usually I usually try to explain this is a supply-demand mismatch. One of the underlying pathophysiologic issues is your brain is injured. Anytime you have any kind of an injured organ, it needs nutrients to get better. Mm-hmm. The nutrients get there by blood flow, and inherently with concussions, you get vasoconstriction, so your blood vessels narrow, making it more difficult for the blood to get there. Wow. And if you're going to be doing a more elaborate task, whether that's uh, math homework when you don't really do well with math to begin with, so it's harder, or you're trying to do something exertional, you need more blood flow when you do any of those things. So it's, if it's already having trouble getting there, it's going to have even more trouble now when you try to exert yourself, hence the symptoms that worsen. Wow, that's um, really interesting and, and, and so frustrating for the, for the parents and the child. Yeah, and, and, I, and what I always work on first is explaining, hey, as a student athlete, you are a student first. My goal is always to safely get you back to sports if it's appropriate. But first off, we need to get you back to, to school and to your work when it's appropriate. So depending on when I see them, um, they may have already taken a couple of days off. We better determine do they need more time off or where can they progress on this return to learn protocol which is what, like what a lot of people think of as a return to play, but gradually getting back to cognitive activities. So they need to be able to tolerate some cognitive activities on their own before they consider getting right back into school, whether it's partial or full days, to make sure, are they becoming severely symptomatic right off the bat? Because that could prolong their symptom course right there. Wow. Um, in terms of adolescence, um, they tend to have a longer average course than other ages, younger and older. Um, the average is three to 10 days of symptoms, but I've certainly seen plenty of kids who have um, symptoms well longer than and I've seen other kids who have symptoms for a minute, 10 minutes, three days, um, or I should say two days because that's under the three, um, where it's less than that. So it, it's tough to know, um, but uh, it's something we kind of continue to talk about um, based on that visit and any follow-up visits that are needed. You know, it's funny. I had a head injury when I was a, a kid. I was in nursing school, actually. My husband and I, we were the weekend we got engaged, I, we ended up in a really bad car accident, and I had a head injury, and I had to take... Um, a a few couple months off from school but when I went back especially to nursing I had such a hard time I had such a hard time I had to actually step away and restart the following year because I just couldn't concentrate and I never had anyone explain it to me that way even though I'm a nurse just no one ever explained it to me that way so it's really it's I think it's such useful information for parents out there when their child does suffer an injury like that yeah, and what you just described right there sounds like post-concussion syndrome. Yeah. So it's not just right after the bat right there. It's, it's a prolonged yeah. uh, period of symptoms that you kind of more so notice as you got back to some of the activities you were doing beforehand. Right, and really it was tough. frustrating and depressing at the same time, right? Yeah. It was really, really tough. Yeah. I mean, it got better, but but time is your 
is your friend, right? With that, it heals. You just got to be uh, time. It, 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 that's, yeah, it should heal over time. And the question is always going to be how long is it going to take based yeah. on how significant the injury was, wow. um, your previous concussion injury or concussion history. And then the other issue is there's some other factors that we think about that can actually prolong your course of symptoms because these patients tend to have higher baseline scores. Right. Things like people with chronic migraine headaches, uh, learning disabilities, dyslexia, ADD or ADHD, um, anxiety, depression. So yeah. those are all uh, mitigating factors that I look at um, to see, are they concomitantly existent? And if so, then I, I always let them know ahead of time, this may take longer than the average um, concussion from a symptom standpoint and a return standpoint, just based on that. Excellent, excellent. This is a great, I'm so glad we had this opportunity to talk. So we're going to take a break. We're talking with Dr. Dac- Zachary Shepard. He is sports and exercise medicine physician at Mercy, and we will be right back. Welcome back, everyone. Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Trinity Health of New England. And we are talking tonight with Dr. Zachary Shepard, who is a board, is board certified in pediatrics and internal medicine with a fellowship, primary care sports medicine from Records. He is a sports and exercise medicine with our Springfield market, part of the Trinity Health of New England Medical Group, Springfield, because we have a lot of us now. Hi, Doc. Hey, how's it going? Good. Welcome back. I actually had Johnny cut the break a little quick because you have so much to talk about. So I want to make sure that we give it ample time. And I may reserve the right to use you for an event or program because you're really, really good. <laughs> All right. I know you're going to be doing the Sparkle event out there in Springfield in uh, November again. But I'm looking forward to you um, working in all the markets because you really have a lot to offer. So when we left each other, we really focused the first half of the program on youth and sports medicine and all the different branches and things that you do. Um, But we definitely have that population where you additionally treat because of your background in internal medicine. You have that older population. So what do you do and what do you commonly see? Um, by older, do you mean kind of the over 65 or yeah. more the middle Yeah, oh, come on, be a good boy. So <laughs> I'm going to say to you, my weekend warriors, which okay. tend to be 40 plus, right? Yep. So, yeah, we'll, we'll make them a little younger. I mean, I'm definitely going in the later 50s for me, but <laughs> I still dream of being in my 40s. No, 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 of course. Um, So so, so once again, this is going to be similar to the kids where it depends on really what the underlying issue is. Is this your 45-year-old that runs marathons, or is this your 45-year-old who has a couple kids, is really busy, um, and really gets a chance to play basketball with his friends once every three weeks? So it really depends on the extent of that. Uh, Once again, uh, my bread and butter, what I see a lot of is these shoulders. Yeah. Um, so it's going to be that um, whether it's a consistently active or intermittently active individual, um, but I certainly think about different things when it comes to somebody in their 40s or older. Mm-hmm. So instead of those growth bite injuries that I get concerned about when it comes to adolescence, because those are those really fragile parts um, that tend to be weaker than even the ligaments, um, I'm much more concerned about your underlying arthritis. Um, as we age again, once again, depending on what the story is and what their medical history is, you always want to make sure you're not missing any other underlying medical condition that's right. not just arthritis. Right. So that's where we worry about um, cancer or other medical problems when it, when it comes to shoulder pain. Should it be the heart that you should be more concerned about, or is this really clear-cut, this is the shoulder and this is very different? Um, but once again, arthritis is one of the big things that I worry about, um, at least as a basic thing. Um, but this is where you start seeing other more common things like um, subacromial bursitis, or what a lot of people refer to as impingement of the shoulder. Um, you see things like uh, patellofemoral pain syndrome in the knee, 
genetics are really common in adolescence as well, uh, which is usually related to muscles along the thigh and the uh, the hip that are not quite as strong as they need to be for their level of activity right there. Right. Um, you start looking a lot more at rotator cuff injuries. Mm-hmm. So whether it's um, uh, acute on chronic stuff, meaning it, it's kind of bothered them here or there, but not too bad, but now it's a lot worse. You can see calcifications within the tendons, which is letting you know this is not a brand new issue. This is something that bothers you now, but it's probably been a much more chronic thing to actually form that calcium in the tendon. Um, as far as other things like that, um, depending on their story, um, you're going to have more force to go into meniscal injuries, ACL tears, um, other things like that, which can be also just the fact that their flexibility isn't what it used to be. Right. Their balance isn't what it used to be, and they've had to compensate for, for whatever reason right there. And those meniscal injuries, years ago, and I think you and I talked about this before, but years ago, we used to do surgery on those all the time. But now it's more rest. You know, you try not to do as many surgeries on those, right? I mean, it, it depends on what your story is. Okay. Um, the surgeon is going to be able to give you a better discussion on that for sure. Um, when we talk about somebody who doesn't have underlying pathology in their knee, right. meaning they don't have arthritis, um, they don't have any other findings that would cause them uh, the injury, then, yeah, meniscal injury is concerning. That's usually a, a problem right there. Um, if you have underlying arthritis, for example, uh, we tend to see quite a bit of medial joint line arthritis so along the inside of the knee. If you have the abnormality where the bones are a lot closer to each other um, based on uh, numerous issues which is causing the arthritis, you can have injuries to the meniscus, which can be uh, termed degenerative, meaning you had the abnormality which is causing it. At times, your degenerative meniscal tears can progress to the point where that little piece of meniscus that was injured can just kind of um, completely come off relieving the injury, um, and that wouldn't necessarily require surgery, and that's going to be more likely in the patient with a more severe arthritis. Right. Um, but even with people who have arthritis, you can get more significant injuries of the meniscus where you get things like bucket handle tears, where they flip over onto themselves, where you get more um, mechanical-type symptoms. Right. So even if they have arthritis, if they're getting a mechanical symptom because of a meniscal tear, we got to get them over to ortho to make sure, mm-hmm. is there something from a... Uh, um, uh, a procedural um, and um, uh, surgical standpoint that they need to do something. Um, depending on the story with arthritis, you can do um, steroid injections. You want to make sure you're not missing that appropriate surgical patient, though. Right, absolutely. And so for your patients that are in that age group, still rehab is a big thing, right? Because they're not using that joint or that area of their body probably appropriately, causing it to give them more problems. Yeah, it, it certainly can be one of the cornerstones as long as it's not a severe arthritis right. Uh, picture right there. The data doesn't doesn't work well to support that. But in your more mild or moderate arthritis, um, physical therapy might be at least part of your puzzle. And a lot of what I end up focusing on from my basic teaching in the office and getting over to see a physical therapist is strengthening their quadriceps, mm-hmm. especially so the front of the thighs, especially the most medial portion, which is called your vastus medialis obliquus, because that's what's keeping that kneecap best in place mm-hmm. to keep it stabilized so it doesn't consistently get pulled laterally or right. outside. Um, and then also working on their outer hip muscles, the gluteus or hip abductors, because right. if those aren't appropriately strong, that's going to be another reason why that whole hip and knee bend in when they're more active. You know, we talked a little bit about some exercise programs that individuals do, and, and we talk about weekend warriors, but a lot, there's a lot of women that'll and men that join a gym because they want to get fit again. And we ta- you talked a bit about using the equipment but not overusing the weights. I think that's a really interesting topic. 
Yeah, so this is going to depend on who that person is. If we're saying this is a 75-year-old, they've not been active before, I'm going to have a pretty good push to say you should be working with somebody to learn a program um, that's safe to do so. So whether it's a personal trainer who has experience working with individuals uh, of their age and their ability, whether it's working with a physical therapist first to be able to strengthen their hip muscles and their thigh muscles to even get them started on a program, um, the usual mantra is starting on uh, weights with good form that you can do about eight repetitions with, right. and then working up on those to 10 to 15 before you consider increasing your weight. Because um, once again, that's going to hopefully prevent that person from going up too quickly and hopefully allow them to really focus on their form. Because once they've gotten the 10 to 15 reps, the hope is that their form has been really good. They've had a chance for somebody, if they need to, to look and assess that form. Because what you don't want to have happen is somebody tr- starts that um, that leg workout program or starts that shoulder program and ends up with subacromial impingement. So right. um, an injury uh, or inflammation of that bursa in their shoulder, that can really push them back for six, eight, ten weeks or maybe even longer wow. where they're actually having to restart that program all over again uh, months later. And you said something really key. You said that 75-year-old that wants to start working out. So as we said, use it or lose it. It's never too late. Yeah, and the other thing is also you want to make sure it's it's safe. You you right. want to make sure that you're you're intervening. Is this a patient who gets chest pain when they walk around, mm-hmm. where they need to have a full cardiac evaluation prior to considering starting an exercise program? You want to consider their medical comorbidities. Somebody with diabetes is certainly going to be at higher risk than that individual who doesn't have it when it comes to cardiac issues. You need to make sure you have that conversation to make sure that um, you know what they're getting into and they know what they're getting into um, prior to even starting that up to make sure it is safe to begin with. We had we had also talked a bit about, and I think it's appropriate to bring it up at this point, we talked a bit about stretching and what's appropriate and when, and you talked to me about cool-down stretching. Can we talk a bit about stretching? Because I think there's always been that misnomer that you have to stretch. There's a lot of good stretching that takes place before we actually do an activity. But you started talking to me about this cool-down stretching, which I think is interesting. Yeah, so there, there's been a number of studies done um, that there's not great data to support your static or typical stretching prior to an activity. So that's that person standing there kind of stretching out the front of their thighs, stretching out their hamstring, stretching out their shoulder. Um, your much more effective stretch or activity before your workout is the light jog. Hmm. Um, some basic warm-up stuff. Just get those muscles nice and loose and warmed up uh, prior to that activity. And the better data actually supports that static stretching where you're standing in place or sitting in place after the, oh, after the exercise. Muscles right there. Yeah. With a cool down stretch right there. Right. Um, there has been at least some of the studies I was taking a look at. There is some benefit when it comes to the static stretching in general. It can lower your rates of back pain and soft pain. Um, but it's not great to say this is to prevent an injury prior to an activity. Right. So, you know, we see a lot of people who jump on the treadmill for a good 10 minutes before they actually do their workout just to get their heart going. So yeah, I would, I would certainly support that, yeah. So something like that, just to get your body moving a bit and get your mind into the realm of exercise. And whether you stay on that or you move to something else, that's where you should start is trying to get your, your heart pumping. Yeah, so, so whether it's uh, some jump rope, whether it's a treadmill, whether it's some what we call ballistic stretching, where it's a lot more movement when it comes to that joint right there, where it's not just standing there, right. just something to get those muscles moving, something to get them warm, get the blood flow to them. One area of the body that we didn't talk about was was feet. Do you deal a lot with injuries to the feet, like plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendonitis, anything like that? 
Yeah, it, it's interesting. I actually don't see it as much as I did back in fellowship because we have uh, podiatrists that work with us. They work with um, you, right? So, so a lot of the patients will either self-refer at podiatrist, which is great because they do an awesome job. Right. Um, I do I do tend to see someone after. I actually see uh, some more of that in my primary care clinic, just a, a patient of mine that happens to come in, and, and, and it's nice that I'm able to use some of this sports stuff uh, to help them out. Uh, but certainly a number of things that I had seen uh, back in my fellowship that I do manage. Um, and once again, it depends on, on what it is. Um, I'm, I'm uh, more of an acute injury depending on what the problem is, but I do a lot of kind of gait analysis just with patients walking down the hall, getting an idea of where they distribute their weight and how they walk, because that, that can be not just an issue when it comes to the foot or ankle, um, but also an issue kind of going up the entire kinetic chain, the knee to the hip to the back. That's, you know, it's so interesting, too, because if you have pain somewhere else, you tend to walk differently on that side of your body, and then the foot gets affected because you're not planting it right. Yeah, and that's one of the things I actually emphasize when I'll see a patient, whether it's acute knee pain or hip pain. If I see them really hobbled or walking with a limp, I'll encourage them to consider something like crutches, whether it's uh, a couple days uh, of non-weight-bearing and progressing with some partial weight-bearing, because the concern is always, well, maybe your right knee hurts now, but I'm concerned it's going to be your left hip next week. Right. I want to make sure we're minimizing other issues. It's also some, a way to get some weight off that to allow for some healing place, too. To let it rest. Absolutely. And rest is, and, and you know, it's funny, I've, I've um, been to, we've had a lot of different um, lectures recently around sports and um, orthopedic injuries. And a lot of the orthopedic physicians, some of the things that they were saying were, it's funny, in the, all the varied disease processes, it was rest, alleviate. Ice and, and ice when appropriate. Rest, leave ice or or, or an anti-inflammatory, and but it was rest was key. Yeah, and, and you certainly need to do kind of what they're prescribing right there. You need to do some of that. To get to the point where you can start the therapy. If I have a patient coming in with an acute knee injury. Yet I don't think it's something like an ACL tear or something else that requires surgery or further imaging. Um, yeah. You need to get to the point where you can actually physically be able to do the rehab. Right. If you have an acute hamstring injury and you're hobbling around um, and limping and you, and you really can't do much of anything, it, it's going to be silly to really try any strengthening. You have to work on keeping the range of motion. You need to be modifying your activities but not complete rest per se. Right. But ice and, and kind of the rest of the rice that we talk about right, right there. I find, and I find for myself, especially, you know, once I, I twisted my knee, that once I rest it, it's worse if I'm sitting still. I'm much better when I'm stretching it or and I go up the stairs slowly and I gradually increase it. it it's almost part of the physical therapy, right? Yeah, my, my guess with that is those muscles were tightening up or spasming a little bit yeah. just from inactivity. So that, right. that's kind of part of that stretching and activity uh, to the best of, of your ability without making it worse. When is it appropriate to have the steroid injections? When do you find it appropriate? Because it's so, you know, it's one of those things that you, people tend to rely on. And and I know arthritis patients with arthritis, it, they tend to want to rely on it just to hold them off for other things to come. But when do you find it appropriate? Um, it depends at what point in their injury process or their painful process that I'm seeing them. Yeah. Um, so for that patient that has established knee arthritis and they're not getting benefit with their typical stretching or, or physical therapy was appropriate or medications they've been taking, then it's certainly a consideration. The tough thing with steroid injections is there's no guarantee they're going to work. That's one of the side effects or one of the issues I bring up every time saying, hey, the hope is that this works, but one of the issues with it is it may not be efficacious. We don't know for you. Right. And even if you had a previous one that worked, we just don't know. You don't know. So so you can you can do your best job when it comes to that, but it's just tough to know for sure. But it's also a matter of kind of what are they trying to get back to? They're saying, 
I, it, it just it's just so hard to to walk around on my day to day basis or my day, for my day to day activities, and, and I really want to be able to do that. Then yeah, that's appropriate. Right. But I always warn them, hey, this is a temporary help. Right. It does not repair the arthritis. If you have a meniscal tear, it doesn't repair the meniscus. It calms down the inflama- in, inflammatory, inflammatory process and inflammatory synovial fluid so that you're able to do some of your activities you like, or if it's appropriate, you're able to get to therapy so you can actually do some of those exercises that may have been too painful to do without the injection. Right, without the injection. So for those patients who can do therapy, I always explain, and this is especially with the shoulder, that this is a bridge to allow you to get to do some of your therapy so we can maximize the benefit of your rehabilitation and improvement to see where we go. Because if we just do an injection and we don't fix the underlying process, there's certainly a pretty good chance, um, depending on that patient, that it's going to come back. Well, I think we've hit on everything that we wanted to talk about tonight and more. And I can't thank you enough. I know you got stuck in traffic, so I cannot (laughs) thank you enough. So if patients want a little bit to learn more about the sports medicine program up in Springfield, they would go on to mercycares.com and on the medical group dash springfield and you can actually there's within the uh, website you will be able to actually look at the trinity health of new england medical group springfield website and pull up the bios on our physicians but the uh, sports and medicine program there is a phone number to uh, i'm going to say 203 look at me see can't do that connecticut number 413 598-7039-413-598-7039. And I know your bio is up on the website, Doc. So again, Dr. Zachary Shepard, thank you so much for joining us. Not a problem. Have a good one. You guys have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. So I want to thank everyone um, for joining us tonight. That was a really, really great topic. Um, I, again, I think sports medicine is definitely one of the fields of medicine that is a newer field for us to kind of understand. I think it's been around for a while, but how to utilize it with our patients in the industry and help it complement and as a bridge to something else if the patient needs something further. I think it's great. And being able to have it for our youth, I think is really good too, especially with our active youth, making sure that we keep them safe and healthy. And again, I want to remind you, if you would like to register for Sparkle, please go on stmh.org. Um, it's Women Have Spirit, or you'll see the slider across the top of our homepage, and there's a, spite, a sparkle slider that's going right across. You can't miss it. Just click on it, and you can register for the sparkle event. It is $15, a bargain. You get a full bevy of food that the AquaTurf puts out for us. They have stations and past hors d'oeuvres and of course, Sweet Maria with her incredible treats and her cupcakes. And um, we also provide you with a drink ticket, I believe. And there's tons of raffles. So we now really you, want you to Are you come. doing specialty stuff? At, uh... There's going to be a couple. Okay. There is going to be a couple specialty things, but we are definitely going to have well over 40 to 50 providers there. So we're real excited about that. And we will be broadcasting live. We forgot to mention that with WATR. (laughs) I have asked the infamous Larry Rifkin to fill in for me that night to interview my docs because I'm very busy that night. Last year we tried to do it and it was crazy. So um, you can also hear physicians that night live on the radio. So we're real excited to bring that to you. So again, that's May 8th at the AquaTurf. It starts at 530. It lasts till 8. And we would love to have you there. And we definitely do still have some space available, but it goes quick. Robin Sills, St. Mary's Hospital. Have a wonderful weekend. Take care.